Kia ora, I'm Philippa Tolley and welcome to Insight. This programme looks at the relationship between New Zealand and Europe in the light of the sacrifices made in both world wars. New Zealand punched well above its weight in the First World War. It was a country at the time with a population of just over one million people, which sent 100,000 of its men across the world to fight for king and country. Have the sacrifices made by New Zealand meant anything in our relationship with Europe today? One hundred years ago, the slaughter began on the Western Front at the Battle of the Somme in northern France. By the time it was over in 1916, 1.2 million men from both sides were dead. 15,000 New Zealand soldiers fought on the Somme in September, and over the course of 23 days, 2,111 men were killed and about 6,000 injured. A total of 18,000 New Zealanders died in the First World War, with most falling on the battlefields of Europe in places like the Somme, Messines and Passchendaele, to name a few. With the exception of Gallipoli in the Middle East, most of New Zealand's involvement in the Great War was on European soil. I'm Andrew McRae, and as veteran affairs reporter for RNZ, I recently travelled to northern France to observe the 100th anniversary commemorations for the Battle of the Somme. In this program, I explore the links between New Zealand and Europe, then and now. On September the 16th, 1916, four battalions of the New Zealand Rifle Brigade entered the front lines on the Somme battlefield near Longueval, going over the trenches early just after six o'clock on a misty morning. Captain Lindsay Ingalls left an account of the conditions he and his men encountered. His description of a scene of utter devastation was read by 2nd Lieutenant Ben van Velthoven at a service held at the Titival Memorial to the missing of the Somme. The reek of explosives which filled the air further back among the guns was now added by the stench of corpses which lay about everywhere on and in the earth tilled feet down by shells. Dead of both sides Swelling and sodden, mud-stained, grey and khaki uniforms were tossed in all attitudes among the earth of the parapets and heaved out behind the crumbling ditches that passed for trenches. Pale, discoloured, hands and limbs, stiff feet and swollen buttocks projected grotesquely from the soil. Obscene, disintegrated things lay about in the worst parts. Here and there, the bottom of the trench would quiver hastily as one stepped on a corpse, trampled in the mud. Fat, green flies, too bloated to fly, crawled adhesively on one's face and hands. Rotting equipment, and clothing and shattered, rusting weapons lay about. The whole effect was one of stagnant, putrid inactivity. And back home, 19,000 kilometres away, 
The sacrifices made by New Zealand soldiers left almost no family untouched. Shirley Field's two great uncles, Sidney and Hugh Wilton, both signed up together and both died on the first day of New Zealand's involvement on the Somme. Nobody felt, had any contact with them after the first hour. But whether they were somewhere else, I don't know. But after the first hour, it looks very much as though they died in the first hour. You know this expression they used about going over the top? So it looks as though they bought it going over the top, I think. But they never wrote those sort of things down. So one of the brothers uh, commemorated on the wall here mm. and the other at a nearby cemetery, yes. the, the Bulls Road Cemetery. Mm. You've visited both spots, mm. you've, you've mm. looked at the names. How do you feel about that? And this is your first time you've done that. I feel happy that I can be here as part of remembering them. But I'm also sad... You know, what sort of adventure was it? But then what can you do with lads? That's what they do. It's just sad, isn't it? Yes, yeah, just sad. Lieutenant General Tim Keating is the chief of the Defence Force. He was at the Somme commemoration. This brings into perspective the long war, if you like. Gallipoli was the start point. This is another chapter. And we, we as New Zealanders, you know, there's been a, a thing around that sort of said, uh, are we overdoing this? But we should never forget that commitment. Some of these New Zealanders, my grandfather was one, but there's many relatives, uh, went in 1914, they didn't get back to 1919. So yet the Somme and next year, Messine, Passchendaele, after that, uh, Lequinar, um, we, we're, funny enough, we lost more New Zealanders in 1918 than we did in any other year throughout the war. So we should never forget each of these battles, but never forget that overall commitment and sacrifice. There's a simple message out of here. It's a, it's a generation of people who gave a sacrifice, those who lost their lives, but those who also sacrificed their youth. They were never the same again as, as young men when they came home to New Zealand. It's very, very hard. You know, you heard some very graphic images, the smell, the, the image there about the smell of what it was like on the battlefield and the horror and the fear. You, 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 can't, you can't describe that. You have to sort of live with that. I think the simple message, though, to young New Zealanders was they realised that a generation gave a great sacrifice a hundred years ago and continue to do it in, in, in wars and conflict as, as horrible as they are, but so that people can live like they live today. And as the mayor described, you know, you looked around, so that's a beautiful, beautiful town, beautiful setting. We, we couldn't imagine what it was like a hundred years ago and where young New Zealanders served in. The Minister of Defence, Jerry Brownlee, represented the government at the commemorations. His great-uncle was one of those who died on the Somme. In your head, start hearing, I guess, what the sounds must have been like. You hear the descriptions of what it was like. And then you look at the, uh, the beauty of this place right now and the, the uh, tranquil serenity of it. Um, and I guess it just reinforces what a huge sacrifice uh, those young men made for our country. Uh, we lost as many people here in eight weeks as we lost in eight months on Gallipoli. So, yeah, this is a very poignant place and I hope more New Zealanders do come here. The reasons, you know, that that battle took place 100 years ago are, are just as valid today. Um, you know, we live in a, a world that's constantly uncertain. It's good that we have so many friends here in Europe uh, and can come and, and not only commemorate, but I think in many ways celebrate uh, with the gift that those young people gave to New Zealand. New Zealand's ambassador to France, Dr James Kember, says the shared history between New Zealand and France takes many forms, including the important role New Zealand had in supporting France throughout both world wars. As we acknowledge 70 years of diplomatic relations and the cooperation between our two countries, we are reminded of the many ways in which our two countries and peoples 
now work together, whether through political, economic, cultural, sporting or other contacts. We also recall that it was because of the British Empire, now the Commonwealth of Nations, that New Zealanders joined the call in 1914 and deployed troops in this country from March 1916. Some had already seen service at Gallipoli. It is therefore for us a particular honour for all New Zealanders that the head of Commonwealth is herself represented here today by His Royal Highness. Not without reason, those of us who follow Commonwealth history know well the significance of the phrase, the ties that bind, something very appropriate for today's commemorations. The majority of New Zealanders killed in the Battle of the Somme are buried or commemorated in this very cemetery. The New Zealand Division's losses in the battle, around 8,000 casualties, including 2,000 dead, amounted to more than half of its strength. The losses suffered on the Somme shocked New Zealand. One writer commented that the casualty lists, and I quote, fully revealed the sacrifice New Zealand was making for freedom and that the sympathy of the whole community will go out like a wave to all who have sons and relatives amongst the fallen or the wounded. The Secretary of State for Veteran Affairs in France is Jean-Marc Tortosini. He spoke through a translator after the commemoration service about the relationship between France and New Zealand and the debt his country owes. C'est bien la raison pour laquelle la France est très reconnaissante à la Nouvelle-Zélande. This is why New Zealand uh, is uh, very important to contribute to peace uh, here, and uh, we want to uh, um, pay a normal tribute uh, to them. And the Nouvelle Zélande is revenue lors de la Second Guerre Mondiale, toujours défendre la liberté, la liberté de l'Europe, la liberté du monde. Je crois que Yes, it's very important because uh, these people came uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, Europe uh, to defend peace, de defend peace in Europe but also in the world. And it's a message that we want to pass on to a new generation. Uh, democracy has a cost and uh, it's, uh, you know, to see uh, what's happening today with so many barbaric uh, uh, actions are, are starting again. It's very important that uh, uh, we pay tribute to uh, uh, these uh, young people and people who came from New Zealand, from Britain, from uh, America, uh, who uh, committed their life and, uh, uh, to, to peace. And it's very important that we pass on this message uh, to uh, the youth. Uh, the New Zealanders came back a second time for the Second World War, and it means a lot. To seal the relationship between France and, in particular, the people of Longueval, the mayor, Jeanne Fournier, let it be known that the links will now become stronger than ever. Ladies and gentlemen, and all of those who have come from so far afield to be with us here today, who have taken so many different roads, we in Longueval have decided that the road that leads to this New Zealand battlefield memorial will be called, as from today, the New Zealand Road. There will also be a New Zealand garden that will be opened very near the Caterpillar Valley Cemetery. And that garden will be for future walkers who, as they stroll through this area, will take the time to wonder how and to wonder why so many thousands died. 
Many of those soldiers who were here never went back to New Zealand. The Somme battle was a murderous battle for them all. From the quiet streets of an idyllic French village to the hustle and bustle of a European capital. To find out 100 years on just what the relationship between Europe and New Zealand is and how the European Union is faring as it grapples with a number of crises, I travelled to Brussels in Belgium, the home of the European Commission. I first called on the New Zealand ambassador to the European Union, David Taylor. He describes the relationship between New Zealand and the EU as a strong, vibrant, broad-based partnership. I think in Europe there's a, there's, there's a deep sense of respect for the way in which New Zealand has contributed to their peace and stability. We're 25,000 odd kilometres away, but we've, we've put a lot of people and a lot of investment uh, into security in Europe and supporting European security concerns, not just in the two world wars, but in the period since. Uh, and I think there's a great sense of friendship that flows from that and like-mindedness that flows from that. Uh, so that's how I think they look at it. They, they talk to us about friends and they say there are very few friends like New Zealand countries that share interests and values uh, with them. The European Union, which is currently made up of 28 countries, is the world's largest economic entity, with a total gross domestic product of about 18 trillion US dollars, and it accounts for nearly 17% of global trade. It's New Zealand's third largest trading partner. We export $8 billion worth of goods and services to the EU and import $11 billion from them. David Taylor says New Zealand is always looking at ways to make this relationship more valuable. We've got some initiatives underway in the innovation space. Um, precision agriculture is, is one thing that we're, we're looking at doing with the EU. Uh, we've got uh, a new customs agreement that's working its way through. Um, but the FTA will be the big prize, and that's the, the element that's going to involve uh, the most creative thinking, I think, about how we create a 21st century agreement that, that's you know, a very high standard for them and a very high standard for us. There's very little that separates the EU and New Zealand in terms of issues and things that we, we, we are both following in international policy. Uh, on the economic front, we've got a lot of shared interests and, and deep trade. It's worth about 19 billion New Zealand dollars two-way now, so it's our third largest trading partner. And as we've been on the UN Security Council, we've been talking a lot to the EU uh, people about key issues, uh, and we've worked very closely with them um, across that agenda too. Uh, the main proactive uh, development in the relationship, if you like, uh, will be a free trade agreement, which is the one piece of architecture we're really missing um, at the moment um, with the EU, and that's uh, the top priority, for, top trade priority for the government, and obviously for this post. What's the time frame for that? Uh, Prime Minister Key came here last year and met with President uh, Juncker, who's the President of the European Commission, and President Tusk, who's the President of the European Council. Uh, and they agreed that we would look to get a mandate for negotiations by the end of the first quarter of 2017 and then begin negotiations soon after that, and that's the timetable that we're working on. Of course, how long a negotiation itself takes is, is uh, you know, depends on how negotiators go and what comes up on the, around the table, but uh, we think we can do it um, reasonably speedily. Um, we've done a lot of work into it already with the Europeans, uh, so we'll see what comes. 
Dr. Maria Mutt teaches European and international law at the University of Catalonia in Barcelona. She believes Europe owes a huge debt of gratitude to countries like New Zealand for the sacrifices made during both world wars. Dr. Mutt points the finger at the United Kingdom for failing to stand up for New Zealand when it first joined the trade organisation, the European Economic Community, 43 years ago. The United Kingdom's joining the the communities in 1973 had this serious impact on some of the Commonwealth members uh, at that time, especially on trading and agricultural areas. This impact was obviously not only for New Zealand and Australia, but also for Canada, India and Pakistan. It was obvious that the membership of the European communities was going to be incompatible with some of the commitments that the United Kingdom had in place with the member states of the Commonwealth, especially in the trading area. The United Kingdom was very interested in the common market, but it was incompatible with the preferential tariff system that the members of the Commonwealth benefited from, uh, from this preferential area of the Commonwealth. Therefore, the United Kingdom's decision to join the European communities meant that the relationship between uh, Commonwealth members and the European communities, particularly during the 70s and the 80s, was characterized by tensions. But if we talk about the relationship, the particular relationship between New Zealand and uh, the European Union, we can talk about three different or three important stages. The, the first one, uh, begins in the 1950s till the 1970s and was characterized by a mutual lack of interest. The second stage from the 70s till the 90s was marked by tensions due to the loss of privilege for some of the Commonwealth members, including New Zealand, despite the fact, and this is important, that the British had at first promised to be mindful about Commonwealth interests. And the third stage, which is from the 90s till the present, is marked, by, is marked by an improvement in their relations. However, after United Kingdom's departure, uh, the future is uh, quite uncertain. One of a number of non-government organisations working out of Brussels is Friends of Europe. It's a leading think tank that aims to stimulate new thinking on global and European issues. Its director of policy, Shada Islam, says the EU's relationship with New Zealand has really taken off in the last two years. With the trade negotiations underway and talk about strategic partnerships, like-minded and all that, I don't think a country like New Zealand would have invested so much time and energy in this relationship with the EU unless it was really, really important. I mean, New Zealand is focused very much on China and Asia, but it does look uh, further afield to Europe. And that's obviously because you see not just a market, but also values, also uh, the peace uh, appeal of, of Europe. So I think those things will not go away. The only thing is we talk ourselves down a lot and we need to, we need to build a new, uh, a new Europe, which is uh, not the old cliché of the EU working as a technocratic Institution, um, I think that that is old and dead. You know, it has to a new Europe has to come up. So often people say from crisis opportunity, but my fear is that this opportunity that people say is about creating more integration, more union. I don't think that's time for that now. Really, if if anyone talks about that, I really think it's time to rethink because that's not going to sell. And we're in the market now for selling ideas. The European Union is mired in a number of crises ranging from the collapse of the Greek economy 
Brexit, an influx of refugees from Syria, to a growing unease in the relationship with Russia, particularly after its annexation of Crimea in 2014. Amanda Paul from the European Policy Centre, which is an independent organisation, focusing on making European integration work, says never has the EU been in a more difficult position than it finds itself in today. And all of these things together have basically brought about a total internal crisis and a lack of leadership uh, from the EU side. And at the moment, I mean, the EU is more or less led, I would say, by Angela Merkel, by Germany. She's seen as the only sort of visionary or you know, leader, leader that's able to you know, be more creative in terms of looking to where the EU might be heading uh, in the coming years. But we've seen as an impact of Brexit, there's a number of other countries in the union um, that are now talking about having you know, similar referendums. I think one of the problems is that the EU has, has just gone too far too fast and it's moved too far away from citizens. Um, citizens have a very poor understanding of what the EU actually stands for or what it's doing. Um, the issue of you know, future enlargement in particular has been an issue of huge concern because as the EU has gone bigger, it hasn't actually deepened. Uh, and this is where this whole problem uh, regarding migration in the context of the Brexit vote comes from. You know, too many people from the East have basically gone to the, to the West, if you like to say, um, and it hasn't been received well by many citizens from older member states. So we don't know the future. We hope the EU stays, to, stays in one piece, but that's not totally sure. You talked before about the, the issues over the last few years facing the EU. Could a lot of that have been predicted beforehand? Well, I mean, it's always easy to say that in hindsight that things could have been done differently. I guess that, you know, the economic policy of the EU, I mean, the whole approach to the Eurozone could have been thought out in more detail. Um, but that's easy to say now. I mean, I'm not an economist, but you can see certain policies that are now being put in place um, perhaps would have been beneficial um, if they had been done years ago. I mean, for example, the I mean, the membership of Greece, I think we, we all know that it was very controversial, Greece joining the Eurozone. And as it turns out, you know, Greece wasn't ready to join the Eurozone. If Greece had remained out of the Eurozone for longer, had been fully prepared, the crisis that they had found themselves in may not have occurred. But as I said, you can never know these things until actually the crisis happens. But I think it's been a good opportunity to reflect um, on the you know, approach and policy of the Eurozone countries to build a stronger Eurozone for the future. But we're still not totally out of you know, the deep water. There's still troubles in Italy, in Portugal, um, in Spain, um, which other member states are having to, let's say, you know, put the band-aids over, so to speak. But hopefully in the longer term, the Eurozone will return to being a zone of, of you know, economic strength and not weakness. But again, that's going to take some time. Hosek Lee Mikiyama heads ECPAY, the European Centre for International Political Policy. He's reasonably optimistic that the European Union will survive intact. Although I must admit that we haven't had a crisis of this kind where UK is leaving, uh, we see uh, now a core club, uh, a core membership of uh, original EU member states uh, being unified and pretty much ignoring the interest of the periphery like Scandinavia or um, Portugal or Greece or Eastern Europe for that matter. Uh, now, uh, this is rather unique. Um, last time it happened is probably when France decided to uh, pro forma leave the, um, the corporation in the end of the 60s, what was called the, uh, the, uh, the, 
the politics of empty chair when France literally left the room and made, which made Europe uh, unable to take any decisions. Now, um, with that, it is very much in the hands of the current generation of executives to set down the foot and decide, do they actually want a Europe? And what kind of Europe do they want? Unfortunately, due to the crisis, they are primarily looking at short-term political wins rather than the long-term gains of cooperation amongst 27-plus member states. Amanda Paul says if the EU was to collapse, it would be a catastrophe, with huge global implications, both economic and political. The EU was the biggest peace project ever created, uh, and for it to collapse, I mean, I think it would... I mean, for countries like Russia, for example, um, it would obviously be very good news. I mean, the Russians' uh, president, President Putin, has made it... You know, he's been pretty obvious that he would like to see the EU as a failure because it would strengthen uh, his, own, his own hand. I mean... But I think the global implications would be enormous. But as I said, I hope it won't come to that. I hope that the EU leaders will be able to find a way to, you know, rebuild uh, the EU, taking into consideration, of course, you know, what the populations actually want and what they actually think, which is something that's been missing for, uh, for many, many years, unfortunately. New Zealand's ambassador to the EU, David Taylor, says the union's working hard at moving forward, cooperating and making things work. He says this is very encouraging for New Zealand. The EU and New Zealand have got a very strong partnership. It's one that will grow in future. It's one that a free trade agreement will help create new opportunities in the sense that, uh, as we've seen with China and with ASEAN and, and uh, with the TPP agreement when it comes into force, there's an awareness of potential and possibilities. So I'm very hopeful that as we go through the trade negotiation journey, we will find new areas to cooperate with Europe um, in the trade and business space, and that will lead to even stronger connections between the two sides. And given the interconnectedness of the world, the challenges that we're facing, as we've been discussing in, in, in this conversation, um, I think that's a good thing for us. And uh, Europe is certainly people that we can, we can work with, we can rely upon, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to pursuing that. New Zealand's relationship with the EU will go up a notch when negotiations for a free trade agreement are likely to start early next year. I'm Andrew McRae and that's Insight for this week. If you'd like to get in touch or share your thoughts on this programme, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at insight at radionz.co.nz or our Twitter handle is at insightrnz. That programme was written and presented by Andrew McRae. It was produced by Teresa Cowie with technical production by Phil Bench. If you'd like to check out other Insight programmes, head to iTunes or peruse the Insight page of the RNZ website. Until next time, thanks for listening.